Well, I, I have always wanted to say this for a very, very long time, and that is that as our chapel and as our venue and as our Mountain Valley campus and as our Shea Worship Center, join us for our time in the Word. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that just sound great? It does. You know, it, back in a 2015, we were planning this whole year, 2016, we planned pretty far out, and uh, Troy and the team were asking me, am I going to visit Cactus? Am I going to visit Mountain Valley Chapel and Venue? And I said, of course. I said, but you know, it, it's not fair to, to Shea Worship Center, who has to then get a Saturday night video. I said, we really should have the technology to, to send back the signal, which I think would really be fun, I said at the time, where I could visit the other campuses, but keep things still organic and together and very much a community, as we always do every Sunday, by being live in our simulcast so that we're all together in real time. And so we bought some new equipment, and uh, your tithe dollars at work. We bought some new equipment and, and now can take this to the various campuses. So welcome, Shea Worship Center, and it's really great to be here at Cactus today. You guys have no idea. You obviously are very dear as a part of Scottsdale Bible Church in many ways, but the fact that you are our very first uh, multi-site, at least off-campus, congregation uh, holds a real special uh, part in my heart. In fact, Rick, I mean, I can still remember years ago us sitting on this corner here, even across the street. Do you remember that? And we were just scouting out this whole site, and it was a church that had shut down, and, and it was all that, and, and we prayed. And Rick said to me at that time, he goes, this is good this is good. We can make this work. He said, this is my hood, and these are my people. And he said, I, I know we can make this work. And we took a step of faith, and thank you all for being a part of this, and uh, really to all of Scottsdale Bible Church for making these kind of outreach campuses happen it is a really good thing. I was uh, away last week. I was uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, visiting my parents, and they actually live about an hour and a half south of Cleveland. And on Sunday morning, I was driving up to my hometown of Chagrin Falls, where I was going to spend a couple nights there and study for our next series after Easter. So I'm driving down I-71, and you got to love technology because I was actually dialing in live with Scottsdale Bible Church, driving down the freeway, funneled through my Bluetooth, uh, listening to Neil uh, preach the word. And I know you guys had Rick here, and it was just such an amazing experience, just the technology we have, and to be so close even though I was so far away. We're in a series right now on uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I, I gotta tell you, I mean, for 2,000 years, uh, it's probably one of the most often preached series uh, ever in the history of Christianity, right, Ryan? I mean, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, Chuck Swindoll did it, Andy Stanley did it, uh, his son probably has done it now. Everybody I know has done a, a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and I didn't look at what any of them said. I, I've consulted very, very few commentaries for this series. I have asked God to just give me freshness in His Word, which is what my wife's prayer for me was when I was in seminary, just give me freshness in the Word every day, and I believe God has delivered on that. And, and we have some freshness available today as we look at this idea of faithfulness. So let's pray at campuses and venues. Shay, let's pray right now, and then we're going to dive right in. God, I thank You for Your amazing, holy, life-giving, wonderful Word that, Lord, You have seen fit to 
provide for us, written through history, but fresh and alive today by the power of your Spirit. I pray that as we open your book right now, Lord, and look at what's going to seem like one word, but is really an explosive, pregnant concept throughout all of the New Testament, that you'd give us wisdom and insight, ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have given us as your truth. God, I pray for each one of us here as well as at Mountain Valley and and at the venue and at the chapel and at the Shea Worship Center that God is one church. We would now receive that which you have for us. And I pray this in Christ's name and we all say together, amen. So here is the one thing I know about faithfulness, even before we open up the Bible, and that is that there's not one of us here today that doesn't appreciate a really good story of faithfulness, right? I mean, I'm going to age myself right now, but I think of Lassie. I think of Old Yeller. I think of Tonto with the Lone Ranger. I tried to think of some modern-day ones, and I couldn't think of too many of them, but I get to see things like this every week. I think of a parent who remains faithful with the rebellious kid, or I think of a spouse who hangs in there with a difficult and even unfaithful spouse. Uh, there's something about the human heart that rests easy, it rests easy and feels at home when we see or hear about a story of human faithfulness. It really is true for me. I've been a pastor now for almost 30 years, and you know I've transitioned four churches in my pastoral ministry. The Scottsdale Bible has been the fourth church I've served, and all four have needed some transition. Most churches do. But Will Rogers was correct when he said that everybody's for progress. It's change they don't like. And he was right. So everybody says, hey, yeah, yeah, we got to do this, got to do that. But as soon as you go to make changes in a church, oh my gosh, you'd think you'd deny the resurrection or something like that. I mean, people are nuts. And so I, I, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years. And, and as a result of that, some people just downright leave, right? They don't like the changes you bring in a church. They don't like you. And so they leave. And I got to tell you, you have to put up with that as a pastor. We've had hundreds of people leave Scottsdale Bible Church over the last eight years. The good news is we've had a net gain, but we don't like to see it like that. Every uh, person that leaves kind of grieves our heart, grieves my heart. But then we've also had a core who have stayed. A core that starting eight, nine years ago when we started our transition uh, said, I'm not leaving this church. This is my church, and I'm in it for thick or thin. When I was in Detroit, I had an old-timer once come up to me, my very first pastor, and he was hilarious. He, he was 85 years old, and the church was about 80 years old. And, and he said to me, he said, son, I, I've been in this church for, for 80 years, and uh, he said, uh, I've survived about 15 pastors, and I think I'm going to survive you as well. <laughs> I didn't know what to make of that, but I, but I thought to myself, that is faithfulness, no matter how you slice it. And I love that about church people. I love that about some of you, that you remain faithful over time, and that touches my heart. I don't think there's one of us here today that doesn't appreciate or long for this kind of faithfulness in our lives. And what we need to know, let's transition in our minds right now, is that God longs for it too. He he does. As we're taking a look at God's top nine lists of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit lives in us who believe, it's no coincidence that faithfulness makes that list. 
because God longs to see his people be the kind of people who would be marked by faithfulness, so he's deposited his spirit inside of us. And one of the top nine things his spirit wants to do in us is make us more and more and more faithful. So let's begin this way today. Let's begin by defining the term before us. What precisely is faithfulness? Have you ever thought about that? What does it look like? What does it involve? If you had to put it in just a few words, how would you define faithfulness clearly and biblically so that even your seeking or lost friend at work could understand it? And here would be a good place to start. Here's a good working definition of faithfulness, and that is that faithfulness is the ability to be trusting or trusted, we'll see the difference in a minute here, to the point of being trustworthy. I'm telling you, you got to chew on this one today, gang, because this is what the Bible lays out, that faithfulness is the ability to be trusting in someone or something or trusted by someone or something to the point that after showing yourself trusting and trusted, you get to a tipping point where you are described by God or others as trustworthy. And when that happens, you are in the realm of faithfulness. So let me parse out what I mean by all this. When Galatians 5 verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, that word faithfulness there is the Greek word pistis, and that's not important to you. But what is important to you is to know that this word faithfulness Pistis in the original Greek is a very common and often used word in the New Testament, really in the whole Bible. In fact, I looked it up this week. This word appears as a noun in the New Testament. Now watch this, 243 times. That's a lot. There's 27 books in the New Testament, which means that that's an average of nine times in each book. And it doesn't stop there. That's just the noun. The verb form of this word faithfulness, uh, which is the Greek word pistuo, appears equally as much, about 241 times. So that's a grand total of just shy of 500 times that this word translated here faithfulness appears. And it's not a complicated word. According to most Greek dictionaries, we call them lexicons, the word simply means to trust, to believe in something, to have faith in something. In fact, that's how it's many times translated. Here it's translated faithfulness, but mostly it's translated faith or belief or trust. Those are interchangeable English words. And here's the idea. It carries with it the idea that you agree with something or someone to the point that you have confidence in it or them and are willing to go the distance or keep the faith, if you will, through thick and thin. That's what this word means. You agree, you have confidence, and you're willing to stick there with it. That's faith or that's faithfulness. And yet we're not done. What's most rich and profound about this word and concept is that it's never a static thing in the Bible, but it's almost always a dynamic entity. It's not a static entity, it's a dynamic entity. What do we mean by that? Well, what makes faith and faithfulness such a powerful character trait is that it is rarely seen in the Bible as a one-shot deal that you just have faith and then that's it. You never have to do anything more after that. No, uh, faithfulness and faith is a trait in the Bible is one that demonstrates itself 
over and over again, one decision, one belief, one act at a time, to the point, now watch this, that when you do it over and over and over again in all kinds of contexts, we'll talk about this in a minute, there becomes a tipping point, a la our definition, where after enough time goes by, after you prove yourself in faith acts enough, eventually somebody might look at you and say, that dude is faithful. Or that dude is full of faith. In other words, one act of faith doesn't make you faithful. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. It makes you good. It might be a good act of faith, but that's just one act of faith. But multiple acts of faith, trust, belief, uh, eventually added up, lead to you being a faithful person or a trustworthy person. And though we're going to see in just a minute here that this particular fruit of faithfulness is really faithfulness to God in this context and in all of the New Testament, as opposed to being faithful just to another human being, I want to give you a human illustration right now to show you the power and even kind of to an illustration or definition of this idea of faithfulness. And I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here with this illustration, but I think it's worth the risk. One of the most powerful things in marriage, I believe, is sexual fidelity. Just the idea to be faithful in thought, word, and deed. To never use your body with another man or woman than the person that you are married to. We call it sexual fidelity. And some of you have been on the wrong end of that. Either you've not been faithful yourselves or have been, uh, somebody has not been faithful to you. And you know how hurtful and damaging that can be to a marriage or relationship. Doesn't mean that it can't be forgiven. It can, and our church works a lot with marital breakdown situations. But each time it does happen, we realize just how important faithfulness is, and especially, again, what we call sexual fidelity uh, within marriage. And because I've seen that a lot as a pastor, obviously, and because of my love for the Lord and the church, in my marriage with Kim, I have worked very, very hard to protect myself, to make sure that both she knows and I know and that God knows that I remain committed to her in that area. But it's not easy. Pastors experience all the same temptations that you guys do. We're a little bit more sheltered, but we also have a strike against us because many people see us as an authority figure or a father figure, and, 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 and many times women might be attracted to that. And so pastors, I find, have to be especially careful in this area. I'll never forget one of the first times I realized this. I had been married to Kim just about one year. Now, I got to tell you this for this purpose, for the illustration. I didn't look like I do now back then. So... <laughs> You just all need to go with me on that one. I, I was about 60 pounds lighter. I was running eight, nine miles a day. I had a full head of hair. I wasn't what you would call a chick magnet, but I was a lot better than, than now. And I, I think now Kim doesn't worry about me. She's me walk out the door and says, I got nothing to worry about. But back then, it, it might have been a different story. I was working at a church in Chicago, a very large church. And again, Kim and I have been married a year. I'm 25 years old. And I was working in the counseling center of this large church. I had done my master's degree in divinity with an emphasis on counseling. And I'll never forget the day that they set me up to counsel this woman who was going through a marital breakdown situation. And as I was sitting there in the counselor's office, she walked in, and she was a strikingly beautiful woman. 
And more than that, she was extremely successful just by her demeanor. One of those business suits that gals wear, at least back in the 80s they did, and, and, and she just carried herself very, very well, and she was very model-like. And I was immediately just a little bit intimidated. But I knew that I could help her in her marital breakdown, so we started chatting, and for about a half an hour I listened to a tale that's very common of a husband that wasn't there for her, that was uh, you know, too busy, and he, she even wondered if he was cheating, and just the marriage wasn't going well. And at one point in our session, she looked at me, and I'll never forget this, and she said to me, she said, I just wish my husband was more like you. And I didn't see that coming. I was kind of stunned by that. And here's where I made kind of a mistake. I had just gotten done taking five classes in my seminary on counseling skills training, and they teach you that in a therapy session, if you don't know what to say, if you get stuck, just look at the client and say, tell me more. So honestly, she said, I wish my husband was just like you. And I looked her in the eye and I said, tell me more. <laughs> and I realized the second I said that, that that was not a good thing to say because she started to bat her eyes at me and then she went on, oh, you're so wonderful and you listen to me and you seem to be so caring and all this. And I thought, I could go somewhere with this if I wanted to. I did. I I'm not proud that I thought that, but I thought I... I realized, I'm not dumb, I realized very clearly I could go somewhere, and I've had friends that have done that. And then I immediately thought, I kid you not, of my wife, Kim. <laughs> We've been married just a year, and I love the woman now a lot more than I did back then, but that doesn't mean that I didn't love her back then. I loved her a lot back then. And I thought, I could never, ever afford to see the look on her face if I was to ever cheat on her. And, and, and then I thought of Jesus. I probably should have reversed the order. We understand that, but I, I didn't. I thought of Jesus, and I thought, you know, he saved my soul. He's got me on a great trajectory. Why would I sabotage anything like that? And then I thought of the ministry, because I was brand new. I, I hadn't even been hired by a church yet. I was interning at one, but I was brand new, and I thought, why, why would I risk all of that? And, and I pretty much quickly shut down that counseling session, said to my boss, I don't think I need to see her again, and, and, and I moved on. And I'm not saying that things like that happen all the time, but men, let me talk to you right now. Let's just be honest. Those temptations, those things, and women too, uh, do come our way. And, and here's where faithfulness comes in. One decision, one act, one no at a time does what over 30 years? It proves to your spouse. It proves to my wife. It proves to God that I can be faithful in those areas. And Jesus said that if you can be faithful in small things, trusted in small things, he's going to trust you with much bigger things. And what I would submit to you guys is that this same pattern of faithfulness proves true in just about every area of life. Whether it's at work or with your parenting or your friendships or even your church community, we all know that faithfulness is to find one choice in a at a time as it builds, now watch this, one positive choice at a time. To the point that, as I said earlier, when we demonstrate an ability to either be trusted with something or to be trusting in someone, then eventually, and I don't know where this point is, I guess it's different for each situation, but eventually there becomes a point where in somebody's mind and even in God's mind, there's a tipping point where he says, that person is faithful. 
That person has the fruit of the Spirit of faithfulness inside him or her. And it doesn't mean that they're never going to sin again. That would be crazy. What it does mean is that there's been enough demonstrated activity, demonstrated trust, demonstrated faith, that they are full of faith. But don't kid yourself, gang. It happened one choice at a time. This is how it works for life for all of us. It's how we see and define faithfulness. Now, let's go back to our particular fruit of the Spirit here, faithfulness, as found in Galatians 5, and let's finish up our time today before we go to the communion table uh, talking about it in light of God. Because you see, what's so incredibly significant about this word pistis, which again is translated faithfulness here in Galatians 5, but is translated faith, belief, or trust throughout all of the New Testament. Now watch this, is that out of 243 occurrences of this word in the New Testament, and I looked at each and every one of them this week in my study, there is not one instance of it used in light of human being to human being. Isn't that interesting? And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care, as the illustration we just talked about, about human being to human being faithfulness. Of course he does. It's just that God knows something that maybe we don't, and that is that that faithfulness begins with us and him. That's the context that is always used in the Bible. It begins with his faithfulness to us and our reciprocal faithfulness to him. And from that flows all other faithfulness. And so the Bible consistently, monotonously uses faith or faithfulness from us to God and God to us. It always involves, from the Bible's standpoint, a God-given, spirit-infused ability to be trusting in Him or trusted by Him to the point that we engage in trust with God in dozens, hundreds, even thousands of isolated acts throughout our life, and they add up, if we can do it by His Spirit, to eventually being faithful in our lives. I want to show you what I mean before we talk about exactly how to do this, because we are going to, not going to leave you hanging. We're going to talk in a, just a few seconds here on how to be more faithful in our lives. But before I do that, let me show you how this actually looks uh, in the New Testament. When you look closely at all the occurrences of pistis, faith or trust in the New Testament, what I found interesting in my study is that they naturally fall into four primary categories that we're all familiar with. And we're going to go through these very quickly, so I'll just give them to you up front so you note-takers can write it down right now. Uh, and it's simply this, that, that, that the Bible says here's the power of faith or trust or belief as far as our walk with God goes, and that's that faith saves, faith heals, faith matures or sanctifies us, and faith empowers us. In other words, all 240-plus contexts of the noun faith are used in one of these four contexts in the New Testament. And there's power in this because here's all I need you to see is that as you and I engage our faith in God each moment of each day to save us, to heal us, to mature us, and to empower us, if you can start to think in those ways throughout your daily world and start to experience God in those areas, whoa, You're going to realize over time that you're becoming more and more a man or woman of faith as you direct that faith to Jesus because he's going to do those things in your life. And you got to remember that this is faith in the triune God that we're talking about. So it's not your faith that actually does this. It's your faith in him 
and he then does it. Let me show you very quickly what I mean. First, consider the idea that our faith saves us. Romans 3.28 says it this way. It says, for we hold that one is justified by faith, pistis, apart from works of the law. So this is probably the most rudimentary, common uh, way that Christians see faith, and that is that when we place our faith in Jesus, he forgives us from our sin, and he saves us from hell for all of eternity. And it's true. That's what the Bible affirms here. What I simply need you to see, however, is that though it's only one act of faith that is needed to experience salvation, and that is true, I mean, that's why we push salvation here at our church, because it just takes one time of trusting in Christ to experience this salvation. Now think about this with me. But as you go throughout life and you then each and every day fall on the blood of Jesus with your faith to forgive you every time you mess up, what does it do? It does nothing but cement His faithfulness to you and your ability to trust His forgiveness in this area. Amen? I, I don't want to get into this too much, but I, I mean, one of the things that Christians bicker about all the time is what do you do with that person who, you know, accepted Christ and put their faith in Christ and then never did anything to follow up, you know, and eventually has a big one and dies, and then, you know, you do their funeral, and are they, are they really in heaven? You know, and Christians always argue about that issue, and I'm not sure I really know the answer to that. I mean, I, 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 I know what good theology is. In other words, I, I know that it takes one act of faith, one act of faith, uh, to save somebody. And, and in that sense, it's a, a binary thing that, that they, you're on or off, and that there is, even if you don't know it, there is a moment of time where somebody did actually place their faith in Jesus and experience salvation. And that's why we do that here at our church. But here's what I also know, is that if we try to say that, you know, uh, Uncle Joe accepted Christ at a Good News Bible Club when he was six years old and then did nothing ever after that and, and then died of the big one at 78, and so for 72 years did nothing to ever follow up that act of faith, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm glad I'm not the judge. God is the judge, but I wouldn't have a tremendous amount of assurance <laughs> that what happened to Uncle John, or whatever I called him, when, when he was uh, six, was all that real. I, I just, I, again, I, I'm not the judge, though, so I would never say that at a funeral. That would make it kind of a downer of a funeral, but I, <laughs> I, I would never say that. But, but I won't kid you. I'd be thinking it. See, here's what I'd much rather have. And I hopefully this is your experience, it's mine. I accepted Christ on March 11th, 1981. My spiritual birthday is coming up in a few days. And I know I accepted Christ, but you know what? I struggled a lot after that. I've sinned, a, I mean, a lot after that, not, not in ways that would disqualify me from ministry, but as my kids, I'm not perfect. And so I'm constantly pleading the blood of Christ over my sin. How about you? And so ever since the day I accepted Christ, I'm up and down, three steps forward, two steps back. But I've had plenty of experiences since then in which I've trusted Jesus Christ and his atoning blood as the forgiver of my sin. Amen? I've done that. And, and so I don't need to look just at March 11, 1981 as the day to assure me that I'm saved. I've had plenty of experiences since then in which I know I've trusted Jesus. And I think that's the way it should work that you have follow-up experiences. They don't re-save me. Don't hear me saying that. They confirm. They assure my salvation. And again, people push me and say, well, gosh, if you never had any of those, you'd still be saved. I don't know. I, I mean, say it with me right now. Jamie's not the judge. Say it with me. Jamie's not the judge. Jamie's not the judge. We ought to chant that regularly at church. 
because I'm not, but sometimes people assume I am. I'm not. God is the judge. The judgment seat of Christ will not be a small group event. I've said that a thousand times. All of us are going to appear before him, and it's his call. But all I know is if you want assurance, if you want to be a faithful man or God when it comes to your salvation, plead the blood of Christ on a regular basis. Trust in him. Notice me secondly, and again, I'm taking way too long here, so we've got to move along. Faith heals. Again, I know this freaks some of you out because you don't know what to make of the healings in the Bible, but here's what you need to know. And I've read the Gospels multiple times, over and over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus healed people, and it was almost always in response to what? Their faith. They trusted in Him, and as a result of trusting in Him, He healed people left and right. One of my famous story, favorite stories is actually after Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven, and the apostles are uh, healing people because they've been given that, that task and that gift. And in Acts 3, there's this lame beggar uh, standing out or sitting outside the temple. Who wouldn't be standing? He was lame, sitting outside the temple, and he was begging for money because he had given up on ever being healed. And I don't know if you've ever heard the story, but Peter and John are walking into the temple, and they, they, they look at this lame beggar, and they say, well, silver and gold have we none, but we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And this lame beggar gets up, and he walks, and it's scandalous to the entire Jewish community and everybody there because they didn't know what to make of it. And, and at one point, Peter's defending what they did. And look at what he says in Acts 3, verse 16. This is instructive for us. Peter says, and his, Jesus' name, and by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I think Peter's trying to be really clear here, don't you guys? His name, Jesus's. Faith in this man, Jesus's name. That's what healed this lame beggar. And what you need to know is that God does those things today. He does. On all levels, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and our church even believes physically. Our elders pray for people regularly through the laying on of hands for physical healing as well as emotional, spiritual, and relational. Why? Because the Bible affirms that in response to rightly placed faith in Jesus, Jesus will heal, restore, revive, and renew. And again, I love telling those stories. How about you? I love telling stories of people who place their faith in Jesus and experience the transformation and the healing that he brings. He's healed me in so many ways in 35 years of knowing him. And I'm telling you, it cements my faith each and every time. So faith saves, it heals, and then very quickly, faith matures or sanctifies us. The word sanctify simply means to make holy. And so here's a great verse on this one. Give me another click here. Galatians 2.20. I taught you this the other day. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So pause right there. It's describing a saved person. And the life I now live as a saved person in the flesh, I live by, say it with me, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there it is. Faith is also a sanctifying, maturing thing. It's simply saying that as you and I go along in life, and each moment of each day place our trust in Jesus and, and, and trust him or even be trusted by him in our own faithfulness, each act, each decision does nothing but mature us and sanctify us 
as followers of Jesus. And then lastly, faith empowers. I had a lot of fun with this one. There's a lot of contexts of faith as an empowering agent. I'm going to read it for you real quick here. In fact, we'll put it up up here on the screen because it's kind of cool. In in Hebrews 11, it's going through a list of all these Old Testament saints. And it's talking about how Old Testament saints had faith in Yahweh as a prelude to faith in Jesus. And and, and I, I just love this description. Look at how it describes what these men and women went through. It says, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice obtained promises. Stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, meaning Christ. They were looking forward to Christ. What I love about that description there is that that makes most of our problems pale by comparison. Amen? Been sawed in two recently? You probably haven't. Been having to hide out in a cave? Well, maybe some of you have, but most of you haven't. And yet, these people who experience all this place their faith in God And in placing their faith in God, he empowered them, at the very least, to endure those things, at the very most, as we talked a few weeks ago, to have joy in the midst of them, peace and contentment. And again, it just teaches us that faith, at the end of the day, empowers us greatly in our lives. So add it all up, gang. Faith saves, it heals, it matures, it empowers to the point, and here's the whole point of the message, that when you regularly place your trust in Jesus for these things and more. And then you experience his salvation, his healing, his sanctifying work, his power when you most need it. Then over time, as you continue to trust in him, I promise you, it's going to create the fruit of faithfulness in you. It's how it works. It's a natural, organic part of our walk with him. And though this is for another sermon, I kind of hinted to it earlier. It goes without saying that if you're really faithful to God and you really know God and his grace and his love, that will very much translate to your human relationships. Amen? Boy, you guys are pathetic. Let's take another run at that. That should translate to your human relationships. Amen? And some of you say, well, I know somebody who's considered godly and isn't very, you know, faithful and nice to me. Well, guess what? They ain't godly. I like how Dave Barry says that. He says that if somebody is nice to you but not nice to the waiter, they're not a nice person. So the reality is, is if somebody claims to know God and claims to know his grace and claims to be really faithful to him but then treats you like dirt, I got news for you. They're a fake. They are. That's not real. Because if they truly had the kind of relationship with God in which that kind of faithfulness, love, and grace was always existing between them, they'd be the most awesome person for you to ever be around. They were. It's a fruit, and it shows itself in how we interact with others around us. But it all begins with God. 
Now, one last thought, and then we're going to um, go to the communion table here and at our campuses and venues. We've just got a few minutes left here. Uh, if, if you're tracking with me today, one of the things you might be feeling, and I'd feel this too if I were you right now, is that you'd be feeling this. You're, you're thinking, Jamie, gosh, you're putting a lot of pressure on us. Like, you know, you're telling us we've got to trust Jesus with salvation and with healing and with maturity and with, you know, power. And, you, you know, you said all along that this isn't our to-do list, that this is God's list of things he wants to do in us. But now today you're making it sound like our to-do list. I, I want to explain that. Here's what the Bible does say. Give me the, yeah, this. It, the Bible does say, and we have, this is the good news, that faith, pistis, is a gift to us from God. In other words, if you're saved here today, got news for you, <laughs> Even the faith that you had that you placed in Jesus, won your own. He gave it to you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. And then Romans 12, 3 says that God has allotted to each of us a measure, a certain measure of faith. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 9 says that even faith is a gift of God. Uh, to us, and some have more of that gift than others. So ultimately, any faith that you and I have is a gift given to us from God. And, and so you can't control it. And, and by the way, if you say, well, he hasn't given me that much faith, we'll go back to what Jesus said. All it takes is the faith of a mustard seed, just a little bit, rightly placed upon him, and you're golden. And you see, that's the point, is that God gives us the gift of faith. Now watch this. But we still must take the faith that God gives us and we need to choose it, choose to place it upon him. This is why, gang, the Bible calls us consistently to place our faith in Jesus. Have you ever wondered that? Because there's lots of places, conversely, that you can place the faith that you have. You can place it upon yourself. You can place it in this world. You can place it in your job. <laughs> you can place it in politics. You know, I'm interested in politics. I'm watching the news last night, but it hit me. You know what? God is not up in heaven right now wringing his hands over Donald Trump. Do we all understand that? He's not. I mean, some of you are going, what do you mean by that? I'm not going to tell you what I meant by that, but I can tell you right now that, that, that God is not up in heaven going, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. He's not. He's God. He's in total control of this stuff. And he's saying to you and me, be concerned, cast your vote. I believe Christians should vote. Have your passion, whatever that might be, and then let it go and place your faith in me. That's what God says over and over again, and that's every area of life. Don't place too much faith in your family. Don't place too much faith in yourself. Not too much faith in your work. Not too much faith in culture. If you err on anything, err on the side of placing that wonderful gift of faith that you've been given in God. So here's my take-home point to you guys today. And that is that if you want to have more faithfulness in your life, you need to repent of misplaced trust. That, that's the key there. I'm telling you, that's the culprit. The culprit is not that you don't have enough faith. The culprit is you've taken the faith that God has given you and you've placed it in the wrong places. And maybe now this will explain one of Jesus' most hard-hitting but profound sayings that he ever came up with that some of you have never understood up until this point right now. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now watch this, gang. It says Jesus said to his disciples. So these are people who already have faith. These are people who are already arguably saved 
by this point. They, they understand him as Messiah, and they place their faith in him. And what does he say to these already saved, already having faith people? If you wish to now come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, don't trust in yourself. Die to yourself, take up your cross, and then place your trust in Jesus. And see, that's the challenge for you and me every day. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul ends the letter by saying to Timothy these wonderful, amazing words. He says, don't forget, Timothy, fight the good fight of, do you guys know how it ends? Faith. Isn't that interesting? Fight the good fight of faith. He didn't say, hey, fight the good fight of lifestyle. Make sure your lifestyle is commensurate with being a Christian. Fight the good fight of doctrine. Make sure you believe the right things. Fight. All those are important things. Do we all understand that? But what matters most, where the battle really is, now don't miss this, the battle really is the fact that you and I are going to go out of here today, Shea and, and, and Mountain Valley, you guys are going to go out of here today, and, and there's going to be assault on your soul for you to not trust in God. I know it sounds so simple, but it's true. You're going to hit conflict at work tomorrow. You're going to have a relational riff with one of your kids who's been taking stupid pills, as Neil said recently. You know, you're going to, you're, something's going to come your way that's going to test your mettle. And when that comes, everything in you is going to scream, trust yourself, trust culture, trust your education, trust this. As C.S. Lewis says, it's first things versus second things. That trust isn't bad, but it's a second thing trust. Your first place trust should be where? In Jesus. And that's where the battle really resides. And if you choose to place your faith in Jesus, you will be a faithful man or woman over time. A closing illustration, and we'll be done. I, uh, I, I experience this as your pastor every week. <laughs> and as I say quite often, if I experience this, you guys are goners. Because the reality is, is that I'm surrounded by Christians all the time. I can't get away from them. I'm in sprout. Hey, Pastor Jamie. You know, I mean, I'm, just, I'm constantly surrounded by Christians. I'm reminded all the time that I'm saved, that I'm sanctified, that I'm one of his, you know, toe the line, walk the narrow road. I mean, I'm constantly reminded of that. I can't get away from that, which is good. It's good. But even given all of that and a reminder of who I am all the time, I'm just amazed how every day I'm tempted to trust in myself or my own ingenuity or whatever um, and not in Jesus. And you know where it really shows itself? Now, this is insidiously evil. It shows itself actually when I'm studying the Word of God. <laughs> it, it would not be unusual for me to sit down on a Thursday morning. I'm going into sermon prep, and I've had, you know, 18 meetings on Wednesday and or Tuesday and Wednesday, and I'm, 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 I feel pressure. And I've got to get to the Word. I've got to have something to say for Sunday. And so I'll, I'll, I'll open up the book. And, and I'm not bragging here, but I'm pretty smart. I'm, I'm rather creative. I'm very intellectually curious. So i got all the goods to put together a good talk. And so I open up the Bible, and, I, and I'll just start, you know, I'll read it. Okay, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is. And, I'll, and then I'll go to the Greek, and I'll start studying, and I'll do all these things. And before you know it, I realize I never even prayed. <laughs> I never asked God for any help. I never submitted my soul to Him. I just got right into it. And honestly, gang, there's some times where I'm sitting there in my home office and I realize what I've just done and I get red-faced. <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed. <laughs> and I'll just shut the book and I'll fold my hands like a little kid and I'll just say, oh, God, forgive me. Because once again, I dove into this and I didn't even submit my mind and my heart to you. 
And I'll say a prayer that I've prayed a thousand times. It's not a complicated prayer. It's not a long prayer, but it's my study prayer. And that's that I pray, oh God, may what I'm about to study be your word to your people infused by your spirit. Because if it's anything less than that, then it's just a human talk that they might appreciate but has no power behind it. And then I go to Friday after I do my study, and you guess it, there's some Fridays where I'm going to put you know, the message together and come up with illustrations and stories that they're going to like and all this. And I, I had a meeting every Friday morning, so I'm feeling pressure. i got to get to it. And, and, I, and I get to my home office, and you know what I do? I do it again. I start diving in. And, and I go, this would be a great illustration, this and this. And, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I did it again. I, I, <laughs> where's my heart? Can you guys relate to this at all, or am I just the wretch? I mean, can you guys relate to this? <laughs> See, I think that goes on at your work. I think it goes on at school. I think it goes on at home. I think it goes on, it goes on everywhere. And, and every time we miss an opportunity to notch another belt, belt, uh, notch, put another notch in our belt of faithfulness. Because God says his spirit lives in you. He's going to convict you of that. So here's my, here's my last word. I, I encourage you this week, as you go out throughout your week, to maybe discipline yourself three times each day. Maybe even call it breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> discipline yourself three times each day to pause and ask yourself, who am I trusting right now? I mean, really do a gut check. Audit your very soul and say, what am I, who or what am I trusting right now? Am I trusting culture? Am I trusting my education? Am I trusting my, my, my giftedness? Because I'm pretty gifted. Am I trusting my family? Am I trusting my friends? Am I, what, am I trusting my good mind? What am I trusting right now? Because my guess is, if you're at all humble, you might realize that you have some more room to place that wonderful faith you've been gifted in God and in Jesus. And then as you do that, he saves, he heals, he matures, and he empowers. And who doesn't want more of that? We're going to go to the communion table right now with, uh, here at Cactus and then also at the Shea Worship Center and at the venue and chapel in Mountain Valley, and their pastors are going to lead them in communion over at those settings, and Rick's going to lead us here in communion. And so what a great day for you to do a gut check on your own soul and ask God to give you a spirit of faithfulness, and he will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us and that your grace is upon us in Jesus more than we could ever imagine. I love Ephesians 1.3, that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so, God, as we've talked just a bit about that today, God, I pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would help us to be men and women who take the faith you've given to us and place it upon you. And that as we do, we would realize not just your salvation, but your healing and your sanctifying work and your empowerment. And then, Lord, may we look back on those times and take no credit for them, but say only God and give you all the glory. And I pray this in Christ's name.